Welcome to this most extraordinary evening as we gather to celebrate the work of Rob Shetterly and his ongoing project, Americans Who Tell the Truth. The heart of this evening's celebration being the music of Reggie Harris, one of the truth tellers highlighted in Rob's collection of more than 250 portraits. I am Elaine Hughes, a neighbor of Rob's and Gail's on the Bagaduce River, privileged to welcome you and to share a few words about how I have come to understand the meaning of Rob's project, Americans Who Tell the Truth, in my own life. A testimonial I can best give by way of a a tuning fork, that seemingly small, insignificant little tool by which violins and violas, cellos and basses, and indeed entire orchestras tune their instruments before beginning to play their music. A tuning fork, accompanied by this little poem. First, there was the tone rising from the beginning of time. The stars heard it before anyone else, but if you'd been there, you would have noticed how the feathery fronds of ferns and the inky black eyes of ravens, the phosphorescence of plankton and the roots of ancient trees, just to name a few, all turned toward the tone, attuning their feathers and fronds and hearts and bones to its singular sound, tuning, turning, tuning, until they were one with its vibration, its elation, its manifestation of what can only be called. What would you call that tone? Heard from the beginning of time and turned toward, tuned to, over the eons by a few, as it was that day in Sarajevo, when Vedran Smailovich, principal cellist of the Sarajevo Opera Orchestra, donned his concert dress set up his chair in front of the bakery where 22 people had been killed by Serbian mortar fire and played Abenoni's Adagio each morning for 22 days, one day in memory of each of those killed, each of those days being a day when more members of the Sarajevo Opera Orchestra joined Vedran Smilovic, tuning their instruments, their hearts, their bodies, and beings to the tone that had sounded from the beginning and Vedran Smailovich had heard drawing the bow over his very body so others could hear it too. What do you call that tone? And where is it sounding now? Shh. Listen. What I want to say is that Rob Shetterly's project, Americans Who Tell the Truth, has awoken me to that tone, that sound, being for me a kind of a tuning fork, which has invited me, challenged me, to listen to the sound of 250 people who have drawn the bow over their very bodies so we too could hear the devastation of love, the demand of justice, the aching cry of creation, the weeping of the world, the excruciating beauty of first light, the rage of the oppressed, the courage of compassion. Rob Shetterly has invited me, challenged me, to hear the tone that has arisen from the beginning of time, audible now in the voices of those who speak truth to power. 
The same tone he heard when, on the eve of the first Iraq war, he wondered how he might draw the bow over his body, choosing to do so just as Vedran Smailovich did by using the gifts that are uniquely and profoundly his, so others might hear that tone rising from the devastations and the diminishments and the death de dealing of the days in which we live. So others, like me, like you, could spend our days tuning, turning, tuning our lives toward that tone, that sound, just as the feathery fronds of ferns, the inky black eyes of crows, the phosphorescence of plankton, and the roots of ancient trees have done since the beginning of time. Until we, using the gifts that are uniquely and profoundly ours, can draw the bow over our bodies too. This is the gift Robert Shetterly's series of portraits, Americans Who Tell the Truth, has become for me. And honestly, I'm not sure some days if I want to thank him or curse him. Because it asks something of me, I am not always ready to give. It asks my full attention. It asks me to see things I'd rather not see. It asks me to live into the pain and joy of being fully human. It asks me to tune my life to that tone that from the beginning has spoken truth to any power or principality that stands in the way of justice, equality, peace, reconciliation, and cosmic healing. It asks me to tune my life to that tone and to speak its deepest truth. Please join me in supporting the work of artist and prophet Robert Shetterly as he invites us, challenges us and the world out there to tune our lives to the truth and to speak of what we see because, as we all know, it's in every one of us. One of the ways of supporting Rob's work being through financial contributions to Richard Kane's film highlighting Americans Who Tell the Truth, a bit of which we will see this evening. But now, in gratitude for the truth that calls us to be our fullest selves and to speak that deepest truth in the days and the places where we live, please join me in welcoming Rob Shetterly. Thank you, Elaine. Um, no one has ever said anything more poetic or moving about this project, and I just thank you so much. Um, would that that were all true. Uh, first, I want to thank all of you for being here and for supporting this work. I mean, this isn't certainly isn't just me. I mean, it's been an enormous effort by a lot of people to make this. Um, these portraits travel to be part of our, an educational project. Um, it's taken a lot of help along the way from a lot of people. And, you know, there's a, a kind of a funny moment here where you know, I feel that my uh, job, like probably everybody in this room, is to not stand out from a community, but to be fully embedded in it. That's where I want to be now, and that's where... <laughs> 
all of us need to be now is fully embedded in our communities. And, and for this moment here to be separated out a little bit is, uh, I think abashed is the word. I feel a little abashed. Um, but anyway, um, I'm so grateful for all of this. I just want to thank, uh, there are some people in the room I, I want to thank in particular, though. My, the, the people on the board of the Americans to Tell the Truth Project are here. Doug Hendrick is here. Uh, Sherry Streeter is here. Is, is Marion here? No. Marion Morris is not here. Is Kathleen Caldwell here? Um, and I want to recognize Connie Carter. Would you, Connie, would you put up your hand? Connie is the educational director of Americans Who Tell the Truth, who does extraordinary work in the schools all around the state. We have the project, the Samantha Smith Challenge in middle schools um, in Maine, challenging young people to become engaged like Samantha around whatever issues they want to be engaged in and actually become effective change makers. And, um, Connie is the architect of that project. It's, it makes this, the whole portrait project, um, effective and real in a way that it might not otherwise be. I want to, um, oh, where's, where's Gail? I know Gail is here somewhere. <laughs> I want to thank Gail. This, you know, this, is, this has been a long road making these projects, I mean, making these portraits. It started uh, 17 and a half years ago. Uh, it's been a struggle, um, and um, you know, you know, I don't sell these portraits. Eventually, I'm going to give them all away, and it's at times been been hard. I mean, it's been a very dedicated process, and um, an exhilarating one, and also a very trying one at times. And Gail has has been so incredibly supportive. Uh, I just thank you, sweetie. <laughs> So I just want to, I'm going to introduce Reggie now, but um, I'm not going to recite his, all of his, you know, great biography and the things he's done and all of his CDs. I, I want to put him in a slightly different kind of context. And um, I wrote it down, so I want to read it the way I wrote it. Um, Americans Who Tell the Truth wants to tell the history and identity stories of all of us. First, our disastrous separation from nature. Native genocide, Chief Joseph, Custer, Wounded Knee, the Middle Passage, the auction block, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Frederick Douglass, John Brown, Lincoln. All these people and stories are my history and your history. They make all of our identities. Reconstruction, lynching, Jim Crow, the Depression, the Dust Bowl, Woody Guthrie, Martin Luther King, Ella Baker, Rosa Parks, Dresden, D-Day, Hiroshima, Selma, the Gulf, the Gulf of Tonkin, My Lai, Hugh Thompson, Daniel Ellsberg, Muhammad Ali, James Baldwin, George Wallace, LBJ, the assassinations, the Contra Wars, John Muir, Aldo Leopold, Rachel Carson, the Superfund sites, Dick Cheney, the Iraq War, Obama, Trump, all of it, its burden, its courage, its murderous hypocrisy, our collective history, our collective identity, our sometimes nobility. 
the consolidation and systemization of white power, how it runs through everything and how a huge part of that is violence, racism, and militarism. The reason I say that is because this man, Reggie Harris, sings the best of this history as belonging to all of us. What I mean is he wants us all to participate, for instance, in the courage of Harriet Tubman. Feel that surge of pride and anger. Admit to being the slave owner and share the courage and defiance to run away, to run away from ourselves. Be carried by that. Feel the redemption of that. Want to insist that Harriet belongs to all of us, leads us all, even now, out of slavery on the Underground Railroad. That redemption. That's a very generous gift. Reggie's voice, his talent, his quality as a person are great gifts. But it's how he combines those qualities to offer the gift of that content that moves me the most. Reggie Harris. Soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Well, you better start swimming Or you'll sink like a stone For the times, they are a-changing Come writers and critics Who prophesize with your pen Come, writers and critics who prophesize with your pen and keep your eyes wide. This chance won't come again. Oh, but don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in spin, and there's no telling who that it's naming. For the losers now will be later to win, cause the times they are Oh, come senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway, don't block up the hall. For the ones who get hurt will be fools who have stalled. It's a battle outside and it's raging. 
assist at the end by me. He didn't call me and ask me to write that verse, but I just, I thought that Bob would probably be in synchronicity with it. And I did pay for the rights to change it. But this one came out of my own experience of living through the 2016 election cycle. You all remember that. On a day when I was feeling powerless and angry, the words of Abraham Lincoln came to me that day. And this is what happened. Here we stand in the middle of a great divide. It's time to deliver, but we're taking sides. And those who might lead us have too much to hide. So the world is on fire again. 
There was a man who once told us of a way we could be in a time of great sorrow and hatred ran free. If our better angels could guide us, said he, just think of what good might be done. If we would stand up, we'll get through the night. We'll find some answers, we'll make it right. Oh, justice will flow down, freedom will reign. Think of the good it will bring if we let our angels sing. Angels sing. There are voices that cry out from deep in the soul. They've been there forever, they never grow old. They're hopeful and quiet, but we'll never hear them speak when we're shattered by fear. So we stand in the middle, but what will we say? Let's start with compassion and keep it in play. Think it all over, and we'll find a way to do what we know must be done. We got to stand up to some answers, we'll make it right. Oh, justice will flow down, freedom will ring. Think of the good it will bring when we let our angels sing. Now we could spend our time just fussing about the politics, keep our heads in the sand. We don't see the signs, but the future's on the line. We gotta work as fast as we can. To get through the night, we'll find some answers, we'll make it right. Oh, justice will flow down, freedom will ring. Think of the good it will bring. If we would stand up, we'll get through the night. We'll find some answers, we'll make it right. Justice will flow down, freedom will ring. Think of the good it will bring when we let our angels Thank you. Thank you. Well, certainly we are here tonight to celebrate who, someone who has been allowing his angels to not only sing, but also to paint. I realized very early on in my life, somewhere around third grade, that the visual arts were not my gift. I was not a painter. And it was in those years that I was, I tried again in junior high school when they gave us the project of doing still lifes. Mine were dead lifes. <laughs> they were beyond still. But I have always been astonished by those who can take a brush or a pencil or just their hands and create works, visual works that inspire, inform, and lift us. 
And Rob and I have been talking for the last couple of days just about the start of the project and, and of the journey that he has been on, first starting with a need that so many artists start with, to speak to some disruption in their own heart and soul, and then to find a way to create out of that disruption a means of expressing it to the point that it heals them. And that healing, of course, is not a one-time thing. It, it has to happen again and again because, as we all know, there are so many things in our world that cause injury and harm. And so he continues to paint. As he said, he expected to paint three, four, five. Well, the world is full of stories. So I'm here tonight to celebrate my friend Rob, and to all of you who have been supportive in this community, and, and to all of you who recognize that he is helping us to recognize. He is helping us to see those people in the world, because the expression of disruption in his heart and soul spoke to find others who also have disruptions, who see a world, as James Baldwin once said in an audience where I sit, and I told Rob today, I was sitting in an audience of about a thousand people at a, a college booking convention. My principal reason for being there was to find work. I was just interested in getting paid. And I sat with another friend of mine, a, 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 another guitarist, and, and we were just sitting there wondering what this night was going to bring. And we were there for the weekend, and we were going to have to come out of that weekend with some real credible opportunities to make a living, to make it, because we were spending about $2,000 to be there. And our minds were focused on that. It was not focused on the main table. But sitting at the main table amongst all of the other uh, well, people who were, and, you know, important folks, was a very singular figure that I kind of recognized when I came into the building. And I looked and we thought, who is that? And we looked in our program and I said, it couldn't be. It could not be James Baldwin, but he had to be somewhere. <laughs> and on that particular night, there he was. He was at the head table and we were sitting there and we said, well, this will be interesting. We've read his books and, and we certainly know he's a world famous figure, but oh. they introduced him and he stood up and he walked to that microphone, and the room hushed. And he began talking to the students, because there were uh, students from universities all over the country. And he began to tell them about education and how important it was. A message they needed to hear, but they weren't particularly interested, I think. They were hoping for a weekend of, well, you know, what they might be hoping for. <laughs> And then he began to talk to the staff that had brought them, and he told them of their responsibilities and how important it was for them to realize that they were guiding these young people and that even though they might stay up too late or not sleep at all, that they were responsible for helping them to gain a perspective of what was going to happen and to see these artists who are here and to take them in and maybe bring them back to your campus. And we thought, oh, that's good, that's good, that's good. <laughs> talk to him, tell him he needs, they need to book us. And then he said, and to all of you artists, I am so happy to be among you. The role of the artist in society has always been an important one, and you are very special. And around that time, we all looked around the room and, yeah, he's got that right. <laughs> and then he said, the role of the artist is to see their society, the world in which they live. And once you've seen what is happening around you, you take it in. And whatever your discipline, you put that into your heart and your soul, into your filter. And then you, you need to share what you see. 
in music and in art and in dance, whatever it may be, the role of the artist is to show their society what needs to be seen. And then he said, often what you see is painful. Often what you will see is devastation. You will often see things in your society that need to be fixed and adjusted, that need to be healed, and that is what you need to show. You need to also show joy, but many of the things that you show your audience, they will not love you for it. And the room got very quiet. And then he said, they will not love you, but it is not their love you're after if you are truly an artist. It is your responsibility to show what you see. I knew that life, that night, that my life had been changed, and I had no idea how much, but I knew that those words would stick with me. And so it was that when I began to have the opportunity to go into schools and to share the story of the Underground Railroad and the story of abolition and the story of civil rights and the story of an environmental collapse and all of the things that I have been gifted to see, it was the music that returned to me because I began to remember those folks in my early childhood, in my church, in my community, who took with them as they fled from the South Six million African-Americans fleeing the South to a, a place where they thought life would be better, the North, the promised land. What they found was a different life, not a better life. But what they took with them was their history, their culture, and their tradition. And it was those songs and those stories that began to inform me and began to shape me to the place where when I finally began to see I had some place to start to express. As they would sing, reminding themselves that they were not slaves in America. They were people in slavery. And they sang, sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, my Lord, I know the road. Sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, Lord, I know the road. Sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, my Lord, I know the road. Sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, Lord, I know the road. Well, don't you know the road by the singing of the song? Yes, my Lord, I know the road. Don't you know the road by the singing of the song? Yes, Lord, I know the road. I say, sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, my Lord, I know the road. Sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, Lord, I know the road. Well, don't you know the road by the praying of the prayer? Yes, my Lord, I know the road. Don't you know the road by the praying of the prayer? Yes, Lord, I know the road. Well, don't you know the road by the clapping of the hands? 
Yes, my Lord, I know the road. Don't you know the road? By the clapping of the hands. Yes, Lord, I know the road. Well, I say, sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, my Lord, I know the road. Sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, Lord. Yes, my Lord, I say, sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, my Lord, I know the road. Sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, Lord, I know the road. A little David play upon your harp. A hallelujah, hallelujah, little David play upon your harp. A hallelujah. Little David, play upon your harp. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Little David, play upon your harp. Hallelujah. Mm, well, I don't know, but I got told the streets of heaven are paved with gold. I'm going to put on my glory shoes. I'm going to walk that mighty fine road. Little David, play upon your harp. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Yeah. Little David, play upon your harp. Hallelujah. Mm, well, don't you know the road by the going on home? Yes, my Lord, I know the road. Don't you know the road by the going on home? Yes, Lord, I know the road. Well, I say, sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, my Lord, I know the road. Sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, Lord. Yes, my Lord. I say, sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, my Lord, I know the road. Sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, Lord, I know the road. Well, I say, yes, Lord, I know the road. I say, yes, Lord, I know the road. Well, I say, yes, Lord, I know the road. Had a wonderful time on the radio this morning. Oh, some of you heard this show. <laughs> We were just having a little bit too much fun. <laughs> um, when I, I mentioned this morning that when uh, Rob told uh, Kim and I that he was painting portraits of us and asked if we would be willing to be subjects, and um, both of us kind of looked at each other and, and we kind of went, really? Wow. Why? <laughs> I think back to uh, the biblical stories that were present in, in my childhood. My mother, Helen Harris, made sure that we were in church every opportunity she had to get us there. And in those days, well, uh, church was a central point for African Americans. Not as much anymore for most people. As you know, mainstream churches and churches in general, with the exception of some, have decreased in their importance in our American life and in actually around the world. But in those days, Sunday morning was the place to be for the African-American community. And in so many ways, the African-American community, the church is the only organization that black folks really owned. And Helen Harris was going to make sure we were in the building. So on Sunday mornings, we would get up and we would have breakfast, and then she would send us upstairs to get dressed, and my sister and I would begin to conspire. And we would say, who's going to be sick this week? 
or some such nonsense as that, not realizing that Helen was way ahead of us. And so it was that, you know, it was her making sure, she would call upstairs somewhere around 9.25 on Sunday morning, church service started at 10.30, and she would say, you young people having trouble this morning? And we would say, yeah, we don't feel so good. I don't think breakfast went down right. And she said, I'm so sorry. Get your little butts together. We're going out the door in 15 minutes. And out the door we'd go. And we would walk those 15 blocks to church, and we would get there, and the old folks would be sitting in the front. Two or three, three or four of the old folks, folks who were sitting in the front, and they were singing those songs, Sheep, Sheep, Don't You Know the Road, Steal Away to Jesus. They were singing the spirituals. We didn't know they were called spirituals then. They were just old songs that those old folks sang. Now, I have to say that in my present incarnation, I have to reevaluate just how old those old folks were. (laughs) Times change, don't they? Yeah. But I I thank my mother before she died that she got us there, and she made sure that our little butts were in the seats. And hearing those songs and, and hearing those stories and those testimonies, which really seeped into our bones and prepared us for what was coming. We didn't know what was coming. We thought the world was just a marvelous place where you could truly be whatever you wanted to be. They knew different. They knew that our world was going to be a struggle, that life was going to be hard. They had experienced these things. And they wouldn't always tell us exactly what to expect, but they would sing and they would talk, they would testify, they would quote people like Langston Hughes and and others who had words for us. And of course, the songs. But then I went to school, and and there, the uh, teachers were teaching us songs too. And I remember in second grade, my teacher, Miss Churn, well, Miss Churn was, I found out later, two years out of college. And she was a fresh young teacher. And I had her in in second grade, and and Miss Churn walked in one day, and she said to all of us, we're going to sing a different song today. We're going to sing a song that was written by a man who travels around. I didn't know people traveled around singing songs. I certainly didn't know people traveled around and wrote songs. But she began to sing. Now, Miss Churn was not a really good singer. But, of course, that wasn't the point, right? She was sharing of herself, and she was taking a risk. She was showing us that you didn't have to be a good singer to sing a song, and she wasn't criticizing us for how we sang. I did happen to be the best singer in her class, but, you know, (laughs) just thought I would mention that. But But she began to sing, This land is your land, this land is my land. From California to the New York Island. Now y'all gonna sit there and act like y'all don't know this song. From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. Oh, this land was made for you and me. And she taught us the verses and we sang that song. And she talked a little bit about the song and Woody Guthrie. She said his name was Woody Guthrie, and, and, uh, and then that was pretty much, as I seem to remember, the end of the lesson. Because in those days, all of the Harvard studies and the Yale studies and the other studies hadn't been in about integrated learning. We did not do a joint integrated project with a music teacher or, or do a study on the topography of the Midwest or Oklahoma or the economic 
benefits of the 1940s and 50s or the crash, any of that stuff. We just sang the song and pretty much the song spoke for itself. But I will say, even in that time when we perhaps didn't have all of the educational boxes checked, that song widened my world by a lot. The song informed me that there were places in the country, California, and places where redwood trees grew. I had no idea that years later on tour, I would be able to go see redwoods. That was years in the future. But my little world on 17th Street was expanded by that song. And then, of course, I learned other songs by other artists. And eventually, well, I was through a very circuitous route, introduced the guitar, became a songwriter and a storyteller, and traveling around the country. And it was on one of those trips back home to Philadelphia that I found myself at the African American Museum in Philadelphia, and I found out that they were bringing in students from the Philadelphia Public Schools. And as they filed into that auditorium that afternoon for a program that I was going to do on civil rights, I looked at the back of the room and I saw some students coming in and behind them was this woman that looked amazingly familiar. And I thought, my goodness, well, that, that looks like Miss Churn. Wow, she's, she hasn't really changed that much. This was some 27 years later. And I'm looking at her, and I thought, it's got to be her. But I had to do the show, and I couldn't go back. So I performed my show, and then at the very end, I thanked the kids. We did the last song, and as they filed out into the rest of the, into the, rest of the museum, I winded my way to the back of the auditorium, and I waited until she discharged her last student. And then I said, excuse me, are you Miss Churn? I had no idea whether she'd gotten married and changed her name, but I just decided I'd try it. And she said, oh, yes, yes, I am. I'm, I'm Charlotte Churn. Now, I didn't know her name was Charlotte because in those days, teachers didn't have first names. <laughs> so I said, well, it's so good to see you. She says, oh, we, and then she said, oh, you're the performer. You were up on stage. I said, yes. She says, oh, wonderful program. My students will get a lot out of what you did, but you seem to know me somehow. And I said, yeah, I do. And, and she said, oh, are you related to one of my students? I said, no. I had you in second grade. <laughs> and she looked at me, and of course, I had gray hair by then. And she said, you had me in second grade? I said, well, yes, in fact, I did. And that smile that was on her face dimmed just a little. <laughs> as she looked off into the distance and she kind of said, my, my, I really must retire. <laughs> I said, well, no, I mean, and, and we started talking and, and I told her about that song and the fact that I'd remembered it all those years. And, and I wasn't able to tell her that in, I'd written a song about Woody Guthrie because in fact, at that time, that fact wouldn't happen for seven more years. But I did tell her of my travels, and I told her that she, in her way, opened up the window for me. She opened doors that uh, years later would come into play, and of course, Woody Guthrie has done that for so many people. Woody Guthrie, of course, one of the subjects of Rob's paintings. So in 2012, I wrote this song for Woody. And you know, if you're going to write a song about Woody Guthrie, it just makes sense to write one that people can sing. Hint, hint, hint. 
No hint needed. I'm going to ask you to turn to somebody near you and say to them with as much enthusiasm and sincerity as you can muster in this moment, I can't wait to hear you sing. Sounded sincere to me. Here's your first line. Let's try it. Take a nice deep breath. Goes like this. Roll on, Woody, roll on. Try that. Roll on, Woody, roll on. You taught us well by singing your song. Now we're here to carry it on. Thank you, Sopranos. Roll on, Woody, roll on. Roll on, Woody, roll on. Last line. Roll on, Woody, roll on. Try that. Roll on. You got it. Born with the heart of a cowboy Okima, the place you began Right from the start The road called to your heart So you set off to discover the land You hitched and you rode and you rambled With a passion that burned to be free And you lifted the stories of all that you met from the dust bowl of humanity. Here we go. Roll on, Woody. Roll on, Woody. Roll. You taught us well. You taught us well by singing your song. Now we're here. Now we're here to carry it on. Roll on, Woody. Roll on. Sing again. singing your song. Now we're here. Now we're here to carry it on. Roll on, Woody, roll on. Roll on, Woody, roll the miners, the old and the young, to the refugee women and men. You made your name by exposing the games that kept good folks facing the wind. And in all of your years of hard traveling, well, you often said you had no choice. Your words made it clear, don't you give in to fear and speak out so they hear your voice. You took a stand and roll on, Woody, roll on. You took a stand by singing your song. And now we're here to carry it on. Roll on, Woody, roll on. Sing again. Roll on. 
singing your song and now we're here to carry it on roll on woody roll on roll on woody roll of plenty to Columbia's shores, from the mountains right down to the sea. You said that this land was our land to have, and it's a land made for you and for me. Oh, but now, dear Woody, the tables are turned as the forces of hate try to win. But we're bound for glory We're up to this fight And we won't be denied in the end You gave us hope So roll on, Woody, roll on You gave us hope by singing your song And now we're here to carry it on Roll on, Woody, roll on Yes, roll on, Woody, roll on. You gave us hope by singing your song. And now we're here to carry it on. Roll on, Woody, roll on. Roll on, Woody, roll stay there and not bother anything at all but it doesn't always work and it will just muffle my strings while I do this so it had to go one of the great things about the American to tell let's try that again one of the great things about the Americans Who Tell the Truth series is the stories that come along with them. We are all hardwired for story. And civilization after civilization forms their story base and then as humans we repeat it and we remind ourselves of things that we want to remember. But of course the great thing about Rob's series is that it's telling stories that often have been left out. Well, those are the important stories because we know that the power of myth has done some amazing things in the world. But the power of truth also rises up and cuts through the myth and refuses to be put down 
when we do our part and we shed a little light on those stories. Can I get an amen on that? Man, that was all right. And so it was that uh, I first heard this song probably when I was about three years old. have to thank Helen Harris again for that. But the story goes way, way back. My ancestors, as they sat and they struggled and they worked and they were beaten and as they found themselves deep in bondage, they began to compose those stories and those songs. But they were listening for other stories as well. And they heard those stories in those church meetings when the Bible was read to them, stories about a man named Moses and other people who worked for freedom, stories from long ago. They gathered up those stories because the stories resonated with the longings in their hearts. And they began to sing. Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Didn't my Lord, didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Didn't my Lord? Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? He was in that lion's den. Sat with those three boys in the fiery furnace till they could get cool again. Stood with the people by the edge of that sea With Jonah in the belly of the whale Well, when my people heard the stories They said, there ain't no way we're gonna fail If we just wait in the water Wait in the water, children Wait in the water I say, God's gonna trouble the water Wait in the water Wait in the water, children, wait in the water God's gonna trouble the water Well, who are those children all dressed in red? God's gonna trouble the water Must be the one that Moses let say God's gonna trouble the water Oh, who are those children all dressed in white? God's gonna trouble the water must be the ones getting ready to fly so you're just waiting for the moment right They sang the song to remind themselves that on their journey to freedom, if they were brave enough and courageous enough, or if they just had so much more than they could take, that they just had to make their way to freedom. They reminded themselves that they needed to stay near fresh water when they could. Get some water for your journey because they couldn't carry enough of it with them. They knew that they needed to drink fresh water so they would not dehydrate. They knew the fish lived in the water. They knew that the water would provide cover for them if they walked through that water. Those tracking bloodhounds, those dogs, those slave catchers would have a lot harder time to find them. 
They knew that walking in the water would cover their tracks. They knew that many of the slave states were separated from free states by water. They knew that the promise in the Bible was that God, the God they believed was on their side, was going to help them in their journey. I don't know where God fits in your life at this point, what your faith path or your beliefs are, but you know, we have all been bought and sold. We have all experienced something that has made us walk through that water. And that is what that song speaks to. Well, now, who were those children all dressed in blue? God's going to trouble the water. They must be the ones that made it through. Well, who were those children all dressed in black? Well, they're never, 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 never going back. Sing it with me, say, wait in the water. Wait in the water, children, wait in the water. I say, gonna, gonna, oh, children, say, wait in the water. Sing it over, say, God's gonna trouble the water again. God's gonna trouble. Hey, children, say, gonna trouble. Oh, hey, God's gonna trouble. You know that God's gonna trouble the are from many different cultures. If I had started that song in an all-black audience, I wouldn't have gotten past the first chorus, and they'd have taken it over. However, the song continues to speak to us, and um, in 2012, uh, I took a walk, a journey, back into time. I took a walk on a piece of property called Hickory Hill. I was invited to take that walk by someone who's in the building tonight. Uh, I had found out uh, some years before that about my family history and the fact that our family began on a plantation called Hickory Hill. And um, through a series of wonderful incidents and accidents and connections, I actually met a descendant of the owner of that property. And uh, we had several conversations and stayed in touch. And then I made my way to Richmond, Virginia to meet her. Lisa Wickham Haskell uh, invited me to come to dinner. And as we talked that night, both of us descendants from not only that plantation, but Williams Carter Wickham, the owner of that plantation. This is a story of America. We are connected. Many of us in ways that we couldn't imagine. And many of us, well, we know what slavery was. We know what our history is. 
But we sat at the table together that night, and sitting there talking around the table, she offered an opportunity. She said, you know, the plantation, or the property that was the plantation, is right up the road in Ashland, Virginia. And if you have a little time tomorrow, we could drive up there and I could show you around because it was a place that she'd been many, many times in the course of her life. And we decided to take that trip. I didn't know Lisa was gonna be in the building tonight. <laughs> she told me that she would see me in a few months. <laughs> but indeed, we took that walk. We took the drive down that road, around the bend, and there in the distance was the main house of that property. Hickory Hill. Williams Carter Wickham had five children by a slave named Bib Hanna. That's where my family starts. I'm descended from Felix, who was the third child. They were enslaved on that property. And there we were. She said, we're going to hop over a small fence. And I thought, in Virginia? <laughs> Is this a good idea? And then I thought, this is a white woman I don't know all that well. I'm going to hop over a small fence and walk on somebody else's property with her? She was willing, I was willing, over the fence we went. And we began to walk on that property. I will say that before we hopped over that fence, I found it impossible to get out of the car for about 10 minutes because of the enormity of the moment. All of my intellectual knowledge about slavery and that time period did me no good in that moment. And I had to force myself out of the car and to join her in going over that fence. We are all going over fences all the time. If we choose to really reveal ourselves to the truth. And that day walking changed both of us. But it was profound to be on that property and to walk around and to see as we stood on the porch looking inside the house. Each of us opening ourselves to thoughts and feelings that often when our eyes met when we were walking around had no words attached to them. There was nothing to say in the moment. Or... And we were there for a while and then we took the walk back out. Got to our cars, hugged each other. I drove north, she drove back south. We took a step that day. We took a step into each other's lives that we have chosen not to undo. And I am so grateful for her. When I called her to tell her that I had this connection and this document that one of my relatives had figured out from long hours of work before Ancestry.com. When we were on the phone and, and I said, hi, I'm Reggie Harrison, she said, uh, she said, um, I understand we're related. And uh, I thought to myself in that moment, oh, here it comes. She's going to want to know, what proof do you have? But that's not what happened. She actually asked me, how old are you? And I said, excuse me? <laughs> she said, how old are you? I told her and she said, oh, good. If we're related and we're cousins, then I'm two years older than you, so that means I can boss you around. 
So when I got home from that trip and I began to think about that day of walking with her, each of us opening our hearts, each of us opening our lives in a way that so often in this nation we are not willing to do. I knew that I had to make another phone call. I had to call her again. And I called up and I said, you know, I'm thinking about that day that we were there. And I'm thinking about those moments when our eyes met. And uh, I need to know if you're willing to share, what were you thinking that day? And we talked, having a conversation together. We talked about our day at Hickory Hill. of autumn catch the wind Memories of those saints and sinners gather round to haunt us once again Now we are finally here together Standing silent face to face Secret family undercover Born of shame Saved by hope and grace Hickory Hill We're on a hallowed ground Walking side by side Hearts break open wide across the great divide. I can see the questions in your eyes now that we are home again. Celebrate the grand illusion And they write it up for all to see But in that mystery of confusion There lies a truth that might one day set us free so now our stories come together Across these fields of broken dreams And the blood that binds us all together Is indeed much thicker than it seems 
walking side by side, wondering what we found. Hearts break open wide across the great divide. Can you see the questions in my eyes now that we are home again? spot and ask, Lisa, would you please stand up? I'm going to do one more song and then we'll take a, a break and um, then Rob and I are going to have a bit of a conversation. Then um, we'll close the night with some other songs. Oh, no, 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 no. That experience and so many others prepared me to write this next song. And also my friendship with someone who's another subject of Rob's series, Pete Seeger. I met Pete Seeger in Philadelphia back when I was still mostly writing love songs, but I'd written a couple of songs because I'd seen James Baldwin and I took up the challenge of starting to write about what I was seeing. And I was invited to be, Kim and I actually, my partner of 40 years, we were invited to be on a uh, program and Pete Seeger was the headliner. And so we got there nice and early and we had a sound check and everybody was moving around and I hadn't seen Pete Seeger. I figured he must be getting there late because he was the star. <laughs> I didn't know anything about Pete. I didn't realize that he didn't act like a star. Pete was backstage. He was already there. He was backstage writing some things up, and uh, he had his banjo, as he often did, on the floor. So I was wandering around backstage after we did our sound check, and uh, I didn't see the banjo. <laughs> didn't step on it. <laughs> but I almost did. Came within about a foot of it before I saw the glint in the light, and I, my foot missed it, and as I came down, I saw Pete. And he was sitting there, he looked at me, I looked at him. And he said, who are you? And I said, I'm Reggie Harris. And he said, I'm Pete Seeger. And I said, I know who you are. And then we had a conversation. He didn't mention me almost stepping on the banjo. 
But there were other conversations that followed. And then over the next 28, 29 years, we had this amazing relationship. Now, a lot of people had amazing relationships with Pete Seeger. He was that kind of person. He made connections. And he was always very engaging, and also at times when you know, I would really need a good word, sometimes I would call, although I tried never to worry him too much and call his house. But on this particular occasion, I did. I called because I was supposed to give a speech to a group of songwriters, and they wanted a positive, a, a, a speech to inspire them because of all the stuff that was going on. And, and in my time, I was just as depressed and, and just as upset as they were, and I I couldn't fashion a speech. I was having a lot of trouble, and it was about a week away. And I thought, i got to come up with some stuff for these people. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe I can call Peter. Maybe he'll give me a good word. So I, I called. I dialed the number, and there he was. He answered the phone. I said, look, Pete, I, I, I'm sorry to bother you, but I got this problem. And I explained what was going on. And I said, you know, I just... <laughs> I have to say, I don't know what to say to these people. They, they want to know why singing at this time is important. And what can you tell me? And there was a pause on the phone. And then he did as he always does. He just started telling stories. And he started telling stories about the ways in which this song and that song had made a difference. He talked about We Shall Overcome and how that rose out of the, you know, the churches and the labor movement and all of that. And he talked about the Berlin Wall and people singing there. And he talked and talked. He went on for a half an hour. I was writing. But at the end, he said the thing that I eventually told those folks. He said, it may seem like a really, really hard time. And it probably is. There have been many hard times in human history. But when it's at its worst, that's the best time to be singing. And I said, thanks. And then he said, you tell him what I said and see how it goes. <laughs> so I did. But I found myself in 2016 sitting on a beach in Florida. I had been gifted with a, a week of retreat at an artist retreat. <laughs> And I was sitting there thinking about all of the year and a half, two years, and 10 years, and 50 years, and all the hatred and all that had risen to the surface. And, and people were saying, this is not who we are. And I was saying to them, yes, it is. <laughs> this is exactly who we are. We are, have been revealed. But that's not a message you can pound into people and have them do think something about it. I was sitting on the beach and I, it was my birthday, December 10th, and I was sitting there and I was thinking, what can I say as a writer? What word do I have like Pete gave me? And I thought about my mother getting us to church and gathering us around the piano when I was about four years old, getting us singing. And I thought about all of the amazing people, all of the amazing elders and folks who have stepped up Things were hard and things were looking impossible. They stepped up to do one small thing. And I thought, you know, maybe bad, but this is a great time to be singing. And I am ready to go. But the word of day, oh glory, hallelujah. Got a lot on my mind, but I'm blessed to say, glory, hallelujah, I'm ready to go. We're all living in a world turned upside down, oh glory, hallelujah. Gonna take some time to turn it around, glory, hallelujah, I'm ready to go. 
a long, long road You got me singing with the CG soul Something me, so come what may Glory, hallelujah, it's a righteous day Glory, hallelujah, I'm on my way We got a world of trouble and a world of pain Oh, glory, hallelujah They keep spinning the truth in freedom's name Glory, hallelujah, I'm ready to go the haters pull up, I just sing my song. Oh, glory, hallelujah. Keeps my mind on track, keeps my spirit strong. Glory, hallelujah, I'm ready to go. Oh, mama, it's a long, long road. You got me singing with the seed you sowed. Something to me, so come what may. Glory, hallelujah, it's a righteous day. Glory, hallelujah, I'm on my way. Hallelujah, it's a long hard journey, gonna need some help. Glory, hallelujah, I'm ready to go. And I'm sitting here thinking about the word of day. Oh, glory, hallelujah. Got friends by my side, and I'm blessed to say, Glory, hallelujah, I'm ready to go. Oh, mama, it's a long, long road. You got me singing with the seed you sowed. Something to me, so come what may. Glory, hallelujah, it's a righteous day. Glory, hallelujah, I'm on my way. Oh, 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 mama, it's a long, long road. You got me singing with the seed you sowed. Something to me, so come what may. Glory, hallelujah, it's a righteous day. Glory, hallelujah, I'm on my way. See in a few minutes. talk let's talk let's talk <laughs> actually Reggie this was billed as a conversation about art and activism and just about everything that I could think to say you illustrated by just your singing and talking well in let's the, go home the first part. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, don't want to go home I don't want to hear myself talk but I want to, I want to hear you sing some more <laughs> we can do that too yeah. anyway um, one of the places I was going to start was so similar to what you said about uh, the quote from James Baldwin 
You know, I told you earlier today that um, I've kind of taken as a motto something that Arthur Miller said. As a matter of fact, it's the quote that I put on his picture where he says, I think the job of the artist is to remind people what they've chosen to forget. <laughs> how do you, how do you, I mean, do you take that as your job in a way? Yeah, I do. Um, it's a combination of telling people what they've chosen to forget and what others have chosen for them not to know. Uh, what a, you know, all these stories about Woody Guthrie and that great song you were singing, uh, Roll On, Woody. Yeah. Um, I go into a lot of schools, as you all know, and just like Reggie does. As a matter of fact, we want to, I mean, I was talking to Connie about, we want to get you in the same schools that we're in. She the already corralled me. At the, whole, the same time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, you know. But I was, I go into a lot of schools and you say to kids all over this country, really, doesn't matter what age, anything, you say, Who's Woody Guthrie? And I show him the painting. Do you, do you know who this is? And everybody says, there's silence, total silence. <laughs> then you say, oh, can you sing This Land is Your Land? And of course, they can all sing it. Yeah. They can sing the first three verses. That's right. That's it. And I said, well, okay, come on, sing the rest. What do you mean, the rest? There is any more? And of course, those first three verses are the setup to the last verses. One bright sunny morning in the shadow of the steeple by the relief office, I saw, I saw my, my people. people. As they stood hungry, I stood there wondering if this land was made for you and me. That's what the song was about, yeah. that if, you know? And that, it, it, what you just said about people not wanting you to know, Yeah. that song is, you know, how intentionally most teachers or school systems or whoever censor that song, I don't know. But it is censored because of the question it asked about what's really going on and who is the country really for? Is it for you or is it for me? You know, is it for both of us? Maybe not. You know, and that's, you know, this guy had just come out of the Dust Bowl of the Depression. Right. And he wanted an answer to that question. And when you see the films of, of uh, those, those people um, in the Dust Bowl and in, in that time and their lives, the, the little pieces of lives that they have and they're holding on with all that they have while others have so much and uh, and that is a reality that uh, is not conveyed to students and when it is I had the I work with a group called the Living Legacy Project which you know and we take people on civil rights tours several people in this area have gone it's an eight-day tour um, through Mississippi Alabama and Tennessee and we go and we visit museums and we visit churches and we visit communities and we hear the stories of civil rights veterans. I, last January, had the opportunity to take 22 students from uh, Nazareth College in Rochester. A very diverse group of students from around the country, uh, Pakistan, uh, Egypt, um, and we had these students on the bus for eight days. And every single day in every museum that we went to, and these are bright, bright students, who have come from, for the most part, fairly good schools. Every single day they were saying, why don't we know this stuff? And every day they got a little angrier and a little more uh, 
vehement about what was happening and they were beginning to plug in their experiences. And of course, they didn't all have the same experiences. In the middle of the week, the students of color on the bus were beginning to talk about some things that we knew that were perplexing the white students on the bus. So my colleagues and I decided that we would conference with them and we would actually separate the groups so we could allow them to say some things that they needed to say. And we, I got the job of breaking the news that we were gonna separate them. And I thought, well, I've survived worse. <laughs> so I said, we're gonna to have to take some time to, um, to just kind of unpack our experiences, which are not the same. And then we'll come back together and we'll talk. And so we separated them. My colleagues who took the white students said that for the first 30 minutes, the, the only question was, why are we separated out? Why, what, and then they said, well, they could hear us two rooms away talking and laughing and they said, what are they doing over there? And they said, we don't need to worry about what they're doing. We need to talk about what you're seeing on the trip. They could not do that for 30 minutes. As a matter of fact, at the end of 30 minutes, when we asked each group to come back with three things that they needed the other group to hear, their group came back with three very esoteric, very nebulous thoughts about their experience on the trip so far. My group came up with seven things. And I said, we're only using three. <laughs> we'll have to choose our three. And that was so instructive. Now my group, as we were talking, they took a few minutes because they looked at me and they said, do you really wanna know what we're thinking? Because they were also beginning to plug in the experience of being in the South and what they were experiencing in Rochester on that campus. Mm -hmm. And unbelievable stories were coming out. But it was a very useful thing, but students this happens all over the country, as you know. And as you get further and further away from places where it's safe in a curriculum to talk about these things, then that material just gets pushed further and further down and out of existence. Mm -hmm. So yeah, going into the school, having music is a wonderful vehicle because we're singing. And I can sing about Harriet Tubman, or I can sing about Woody Guthrie, and I can sing about Pete Seeger in schools where those names may never even be mentioned. Mm. And, and if, when I do a question and answer, which I always do, I'm sure you do too, and I, and I get students standing up and saying, is this stuff true? <laughs> and I say, well, yes, and you don't have to believe me. You can look this up. <laughs> so I don't have to be your authority. <laughs> You know, I was, uh, well, God, there's so many things I want to talk about. We've got like, I know. two minutes or something. <laughs> <laughs> when you were talking about the Depression, though, I was thinking of um, Dorothea Lange and, and also thinking about how art can, you know, a lot of, I mean, who was it? Picasso, somebody said, you know, art does nothing. <laughs> and how art can do so much, you know? And, you know, she was, of course, you all know, the great photographer of the Depression. And um, that, photograph she took of the, in the pea pickers camp of the, the, the migrant mother. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. If you read a book about her and see the setup to that, I mean, she was on the way somewhere else, passed this road that said pea pickers camp, thought she needed to get home to her kids, drove another 10 miles, turned around, came back, went down there, you know, and it was raining, it was cold, and these people were starving to death. And she started taking pictures as she approached this one woman. And there were um, these kids were unsure about what to do with him coming. And they came up and 
hugged the, you know, their mother. Yeah. And then, boom, she had her picture. Right. And she sent it out, you know, back to Roy Stryker at the Farm and Security Administration, and then he got it published. That camp was flooded with blankets, food, a image, one image, you know. It make, can make such a difference. Um, you know, she was fired when she wanted to take pictures in the Japanese internment camps, and then she went anyway. And she took those pictures, and the quote that I put on her picture says, uh, this is what we did. How did it happen? How could we? But, um, you know, that's the question that we, you know, when, when you're talking about James Baldwin, that's the question we have to ask. And that's our job, you know, and obviously there's a lot of other people in this room whose job that is too, is to go to that place, see those things, ask those questions, and, and then get us all to live with what the answer has to be. There's so many people uh, that I encounter these days that um, I hear a bunch of things. People will say, I, I came to your show and uh, um, I wasn't gonna come, but I looked on the website and you looked hopeful. Well, yes, um, and they will say, um, I, I feel such despair, I feel so angry, I, I feel a lot of rage, I feel so powerless. One woman came up to me at intermission and said, um, I told my kids that um, if, if things didn't get better by, by next month, I was just going to give up. And my kids said, how can you give up? And she looked at me and I said, so how can you give up? And she said, I don't know. Maybe after your first set, I can go another couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> but what I, I tell people all the time, where I get a lot of my hope these days is in those conversations with those kids. Yeah, right, I was in Pennsylvania, um, central Pennsylvania, which some <clears throat> people refer to as Pennsylvania. And I say, well, you know, we shouldn't be referring to those things because, you know, we're alienating people, you know, by putting them in boxes. But in fact, it is very conservative, very um, redneck, um, um, kind of like the community in which I live <laughs> in upstate New York. And the kids uh, don't have a lot of access to uh, uh, a good education, and their parents are holding on to a dream or to anger or to whatever it is. And I was in these schools. And the kids, I walk in the building, there are not a lot of African-Americans in those areas, and their eyes get big, and, uh, and I start talking to them, and they can almost barely talk. But as soon as we begin to sing together, the relationship begins to form, and now they begin sharing their thoughts and asking questions. And when I don't shy away from answering their questions, with the same intensity that they've asked them, they trust. And I see their teachers begin to relax when they ask me, why were only black people slaves? And I see the teachers on the side going, oh, <laughs> where is he going to go with this? And I say, well, that's a really great question. And we talk about the fact that it wasn't only about race. It was also about power, and it was about money. And I'm telling this to second and third graders. Right. And people say they can't handle that. You want to bet? Yeah. They handle it all the time. So I think that's where a lot of the hope is engendered, but it, it is incumbent on us to do the Howard Thurman thing, you know, as we were talking earlier. Uh, the quote from him is, don't ask what the world needs. Find the thing that brings you alive and do it. Yeah. 
because that's what the world needs. It needs people who have come alive. Right. Yeah. Well, why do you think... <laughs> Why do you think that through music, visual art, poetry, dance, whatever it is, the, the, those arts, that sometimes these messages are conveyed about you know, the issues in the world, the necessity of action, uh, the truth about what happened? Why does that happen better sometimes in the arts, or maybe often better in the arts, Almost than through other, yeah, yeah. through other medium? Why, why is that? Because the, the arts speak to us um, at a different level, a different place. Um, music uh, creates a space, uh, the visual arts, color, um, the act of dancing. You know, it, it triggers things in us. And I mean, this is all documented stuff. One of the great things of being part of the Kennedy Center, uh, changing education through the arts, was that they had to plug into, to get their funding, they had to plug into research and to, you know, documentation that showed that these things actually do have a very, very concrete uh, effect on people and on students. So uh, I was, on the day before we took my mother off of a respirator after, uh, the operation that took her life. I was driving to Philadelphia and I put on a, one of my favorite albums because we were gonna to have to make this decision. And it's a, a guitar album, no words. And I'd listened to this thing a thousand times. And the fourth song began to play and I just began to weep. And I thought, I've heard this song a million times. And I pulled over and I thought, this is ridiculous. I, I know this song. What? Okay, fine, I'm good. And I pulled back on the road and I re-triggered the song. Same thing. <laughs> so it, it affects us in ways that often words can't express. Yeah. And when, when it connects with us, it not only brings that spirit alive, but it also helps us to connect to other things and to other triggers in our lives that gives us the opportunity to not necessarily think about things, but to respond to them in a really emotional, visceral way. And that's why I think that people are often disarmed. There was one woman who came up to me after a concert, I think I told you this earlier, and you know, I hit some really hard things and we were actually at a, a, a conference and we were dealing with you know, racism and oppression and, and I did some songs and we sang and she came up to me at the end of it, she said, you know, I could have listened to you sing all night but you keep bringing stuff up. <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> that's my flaw. <laughs> it's your job. <laughs> well, I wanna tell, I know we're probably going on too long, but I wanna tell a little story that gives a slightly different twist to that, but it, it's the same thing. And that's about Fannie Lou Hamer, and I mentioned this story earlier. You know, yeah. she was a great, civil rights activist from Mississippi, uh, 20th child of sharecroppers, you know, you, <laughs> more hands the better. Yeah. And, uh, you know, dropped out of school when she was six. When the civil rights workers came to Mississippi in the starting the 60s, she had no idea that black people could even vote, you know, right. had no idea. And after multiple attempts one time, you know, to, to vote, she and a bunch of women were on a bus going back to Ruleville, Mississippi, were pulled over and the white cops arrested them for attempting to vote and or registered to vote and took them to a jail and put them in different cells and then proceeded to beat them unmercifully 
one by one, all the other women, you know, hearing each other's screams. And Fannie Lou said she stood all night in the center of her cell, not moving because it was too painful to move. I mean, she had, the rest of her life, she never recovered from the wounds of that, yeah, that event. Yeah. She stood there all night, and in the morning, she started to sing. And the women in the other cells heard her and began to sing with her. And she said she knew at that moment they couldn't defeat her. You know, that they would have to kill her if they were going to stop her. Music. You know, she didn't write a letter to the editor. Not that that's a bad idea, but, you know, she sang. And it was the singing that restored her soul, restored her dignity, you know, that they had tried to take away from her. It brought it back. It, you know, reintegrated her body and her mind and her spirit so that she could go on acting. And she was fierce, you know, after that. That's what the arts can do, you know. They, and that's, you know, in my little way, just, you know, painting these pictures was a necessity to save myself, you know, and then the rest just happened, you know. And, and I know from talking to you that this singing does the same thing for you. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. <laughs> this joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. Oh, this joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. Oh, the world didn't give it so the world can't take it away. <laughs> <laughs> me years to trust the music, to realize that um, it wasn't about creating something and controlling the way in which people heard it. To, um, and that happened actually not only in performance, but also in the writing of the songs. The, um, the ability to get out of the way after having an idea and to let the song inform you, which is the same way I'm sure that uh, painting goes. You're looking for that window into the art and then uh, it shows you what you need to do, what you need to say. And uh, so it was uh, a weekday of, in a school in uh, Danbury, Connecticut that I had an idea and uh, just used to have to write it down on a little scrap of paper. <laughs> but fortunately, there were cell phones. So I took out my cell phone and I just recorded the... the and that's all I had. But it was speaking to me as I watched those students come into the room. And the school in Danbury is only about 20 miles, maybe less um, than 20 miles to Newtown, Connecticut. And the, 
principal was talking to me that day about several of the meetings that they were having with students at Sandy Hook and with teachers from Sandy Hook five years after the shootings there. And all I could feel in that moment was the sorrow of the fact that not only had the shootings happened, but that five years later, we still had not done a thing about it. But then again, there were the stories of the parents and the supporters and of President Obama who went there and met with every single family and the aide who was with him said that he would get information about the families and he would go in and talk to them for as long as they wanted to talk and then come out and cry and then say, who's next? The humanity, the compassion, and the fact that over the course of years there have been so many, so many who have just kept that light. So this. Five years now gone, and here we stand in ruins on this troubled land. Young hearts lie dead in fields of shame. Their loved ones weep, yet nothing's gained. Some say this is a right we choose. One God decrees we should not lose. So as we fight to make a stand, the blood pours out across the land. So sing it loudly as you go, the sad refrain we've come to know. Our hearts remind us once again, violence is a bitter friend. We seem to love the thrill of war. Our passions fail us to the core. Our spent emotions we deny as hope fades out and millions die. This is no noble cross we bear. No sacred cause lies hidden there. As human lives are passed for gold, we sacrifice both young and old. So sing it loudly as you go, a sad refrain we've come to know. Our hearts remind us once again, violence is a bitter friend.
silence will never set us free. So now our stories must be told. And since we've all been bought and sold, it's up to us to shift the frame so future hearts won't bear this pain. So sing it loudly as you go, so every child might come to know that hope lives on. That's where we start, and love will guide the sing back to me what I sing to you. Here we go. In the shelter of each other In the shelter of our We are hopeful, we are wise. Thanks for singing that last line. For a period of time, I was touring across the Midwest, and I was singing this song with them. And they sang everything back but we are wise. And I had to stop one night, and I said, you people got to tell me, do you think you're wise? And they didn't say anything. And I said, let's say it all together. We are wise. And they said, we are wise. <laughs> and I said, we're going to sing this until you sing it out loud. They eventually got the point. So let's sing the chorus again. Sometimes we forget how wise we are and can be. In the shelter of each other shelter of our lives. We are open. We are dreaming. We are hopeful. We are wise. times the weight of the world crashes in. We feel angry and afraid. We start to lose our sense of hope, our sense of direction. 
isolation we have learned will not bring much in return if we truly cannot learn to live as one right in the shelter of each other in the shelter our lives yeah we are open we are dreaming yeah we are hopeful we are wise you know that many times the pain of the world in. We feel broken and betrayed. We start to lose our sense of joy, our sense of connection. And though our history remains, well, it's our actions we must change if we hope to heal our planet. In the shelter of our lives, yeah, we are open, we are dreaming, we are hopeful, we are Other. Right in the shelter of our lives. Here we are open. Oh, we are dreaming. We are hopeful. We are wise. We are open, we are dreaming, we are hopeful, we are wise, we are wise, we are wise. tonight with a song that is a painting that I was able to make. When the idea for this song came to me, I saw it as if it were a painting. It was a movable painting that took in a lot of places that I had spent uh, seeing through sailing on the clear water on the Hudson River. It was the night Pete Seeger lay dying in the hospital in New York City. 
And I got a text from a friend that was there as so many were standing around his bed and they were singing to him as he was passing over, singing songs, celebrating him in that moment. And since I wasn't able to be there at the time, the next morning I got up and a friend of mine that I was staying with in New Jersey said, why don't you come into the school and uh, sing some songs with the kids and talk about Pete? I thought that would be a really great idea since, uh, in fact, that would be what he would do in the same situation. So I went to the school and uh, she had a second grade class and I was, I was so happy to be able to sing some Pete songs and some other songs that I'd shared with, shared with him and to remember him in that time as I felt so sad as millions did around the world as he was no longer on this side. And as I talked with the kids, they had questions and so they began to ask them and one young girl said, can you tell us where Mr. Seeger lived? And I said, well, yes, actually, he lived very close to the river that he loved so much, the river that he helped to clean up. He, he lived no, very close to the Hudson River. And she said, oh, oh, oh. And I said, yes. And she said, the Hudson River, it's an estuary. It flows both ways. <laughs> and I thought, this is second grade, right? <laughs> and she just kind of looked at me, and I thought, Pete has a piece of that. <laughs> And another young boy said, well, well, he lived right at, at the river and right next to it. I said, well, actually, he lived in a, a, a place high above the river. It was high over the Hudson. And as, as soon as I said those words, I thought, hmm. So I asked my friend, the teacher, to give me a piece of paper. And I wrote that phrase down. And then I began to see the river. The news came over the air tonight. Pete Seeger went sailing today Set out on the Hudson about nine o'clock Searching for new songs to play Passed by Bear Mountain making great time As the water slapped hard on the bow At Storm King he turned that boat into the wind Set the old Woody G on the prow Now he's high over the Hudson, sails headed for home. High on the breeze, as it cuts through the trees, Pete, you're not sailing alone. No, you're high over the Hudson. You've got a hell of a view. Now your battles are won, a new journey's begun. Pete, we're singing with you. Of time and rivers flowing, the seasons make a song. And we who stand beside her, we'll try to sing life has its ups and its downs, but that's there's so much that's been said. Pete spoke out for justice year after year, a leader who actually led. He 
sang out for freedom, he sang out for peace, taught through the power of song. Head of his time in all seasons of life, he kept us all singing on. Now he's high over the Hudson, sails headed for home. High on the breeze as it cuts through the trees, he you're not sailing alone. No, you're high over the Hudson. You still got one hell of a view. Now your battles are won, a new journey's begun, Pete, we're singing with you. Odetta and Mary say, welcome, good friend. Woody and Faith both agree that you lived your passion for 94 years and you lived it with integrity. We as your children, we as your friends, must take up your mission of song. As Toshi yells out with a smile on her lips, hey Peter, what took you so long? And now he's high over the Hudson, sails headed for home. High on the breeze as it cuts through the trees, mean you're not sailing alone. still got one hell of a view now your battles are won a new journey's begun Pete we're singing with you with you and we who must join in can stand aside Thank you. I'd like to invite to the stage Mr. Dick Kane. Oh, thank you, thank you, Reggie. I just wanted to appeal to all of you, to all of your friends and your family to help us get this film made, to help us tell Rob's story, to help get that story and all of his models of courageous citizenship out to every school and college and community center and library out in the country. Together we can make this happen. We can turn this country around and turn this planet around. So thank you all so much. I just want to thank uh, our sponsors for the evening, Island Peace and Justice, Peninsula Peace and Justice, Union of Maine Visual Artists, Americans Tell the Truth, and WERU Community Radio. Thank you all. Thank you.
Here's your part. Hallelujah, freedom. Hallelujah, freedom. Hallelujah, freedom. Been down into the south. Hallelujah, freedom. Hallelujah, freedom. And then we sing, been down into the south. Let's try that. And been down into the south. Well, I never been to heaven, but I think I'm right. Been down into the south. Folks up there, both black and white. Been down into the south. Go. Hallelujah, freedom. Hallelujah, freedom. Hallelujah, freedom. Been down into the south. Well, I never been to heaven, but I think I'm right. I don't, uh oh. It's not been down into the south. It's been down into the south. It's a cultural moment. And you're not wrong, it's just different. So let's try that one. Syncopation City, one, two, three, and been down into the south. And there are three claps, not four. But on the fourth clap, you'll see that I'm not clapping, so we'll be good. Well, I've never been to heaven, but I think I'm right. Been down into the south. Folks up there, both black and white. Been down into the south. Hallelujah, freedom. Hallelujah, freedom. Hallelujah, freedom. Good. Been down into the south. Well, I've never been to heaven, but I think I'm right. I don't want to go without my civil rights. And we sing, hallelujah, freedom, hallelujah, freedom, hallelujah, freedom. Good. Been down into the south. I've been walking around to spread the news. And now I got holes in all my shoes. And we sing, hallelujah, freedom, hallelujah, freedom, hallelujah, freedom. Been down into the south. Well, if you don't think I've been through hell, just follow me down to Parchman Jail. And we sing, hallelujah, freedom, hallelujah, freedom, hallelujah, freedom. Been down into the south. Now the only thing that we did wrong was stay in the wilderness a day too long. And we sing, hallelujah, freedom, hallelujah, freedom, hallelujah, freedom. Been down into the south, yeah, but the only thing that we did right was on that day we took up the fight. And we sing, hallelujah, freedom, hallelujah, freedom, hallelujah, freedom. Been down into the south. Well, I've never been to heaven, but I think I'm right. I don't want to go without my voting rights. And we sing, hallelujah, freedom, hallelujah, freedom, hallelujah, freedom. Oh, been down into the south, sing, hallelujah, freedom, hallelujah, freedom, hallelujah, freedom, hallelujah, freedom. Been down into the south, hallelujah, freedom, hallelujah, freedom, hallelujah, freedom. Been down into the side.